So hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and welcome to my office. This is Beyond the Prescription, a show where I talk with people who are at the top of their fields about their health, their success, their struggles, and their relationship between all of it. I'm a primary care doctor in Washington, D.C., and a mother of three. In practicing medicine for over 20 years, I realized that patients are much more than the sum total of their cholesterol and their weight, and that health is about more than the absence of disease. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, we have an awesome guest, Andrea Rosaghi, who's an incredible engineer in the field of science, and she's the current director of the NASA Office of JPL Management Oversight at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. People love to call her a rocket scientist. She's actually kind of cooler than that. She's an engineer in the field of science, and she's served as a senior policy analyst on the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. Described by Octavia Spencer as the, quote, modern-day combination of Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson, end quote, Andrea is a scientific trailblazer who's helped lead many exciting missions, including two comet encounters, planetary launches, and the landing of the Curiosity rover on Mars. Andrea, thank you so much for being here today. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to talk about so many things with you. I want to talk about you being at the top of your field as a woman in STEM. I want to talk to you about your passion and commitment to mentoring younger women, particularly women of color in the sciences. Um, I'd love to talk to you about how you balance caregiving your parents and being a mother of two incredible sons and landing spaceships on Mars and how you've sort of balanced the career and your health. Let's start with the opening question, which is, you know, what are you up to today? Tell me a little bit more about what you do. Let's just start there. All right. So currently I'm at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory out in Pasadena, California, and I'm the NASA director there. There is also a lab director from from Caltech. So responsibilities there are really everything it takes to run this amazing place, this amazing place that is responsible for things like flying in the tails of of comets and, and landing probes on Mars or, you know, going to visit Jupiter up close. I mean, it's just a really special place to work, and I feel so privileged to be there and to, you know, have a team that's making sure all of that is is running well. Tell me when you first realized that you were interested in engineering and science. I think you referenced something that I read about your dad. You were super interested in tools and, <laughs> and like, doing stuff. Yeah, so when I was in third grade, um, my parents bought a fixer-upper of a house, right? And, uh, you know, I was just so fascinated. There was this big house with all this work that needed to be done. And my father was collecting power tools, right? And I was just so fascinated with these power tools that when I would come home from school, this little girl in the third grade, and mind you, I had two older brothers. I was the first girl. Uh, I would go in the basement and try to make things, fix things. I would drag broken things down to the basement and see what I could do with them. And I didn't realize this till much later in my life, but one of the most important influences was my dad never blinked. He never told me girls don't play with power tools. Mm. He showed me how to use them safely. And indeed through, you know, um, as I grew up and became an adult, we worked on many projects together. And, uh, you know, I just think that was so important because I would meet women, my, you know, my contemporaries who were, were actively discouraged from these interests as they were growing up. And then I, I fast forward to when I was in high school and I'm starting to think about colleges and the college advisor I had at my high school was asking me, what are you interested in? And I would say, oh, I like physics and calculus. And he says, well, you should think about engineering. 
And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know any engineers, you know. Yeah, you didn't have a template for it. I didn't. And one of the most important things is he never told me, oh, by the way, you're probably going to be the only girl in a lot of your classes. So I didn't have any of that baggage in my in my mind when I went to college. And I think it was a real a gift that I could just be supported in my interests and not be told that I was strange or special or anything unusual, but just somebody who was pursuing their interests. So in college then, and then I think later, you're often one of the only women in the class or in, in the room and also one of the only women of color. So can you talk about what that has been like and how you managed the difference? So I started with college. And again, I think because I didn't have that mindset that I was, you know, an odd person in this environment. And, you know, first couple of years, your lecture halls are pretty big and you see some diversity. And I tended to, to sit in the front row to keep, oh, my, I love that. to keep myself awake. <laughs> I figure I can't fall asleep in the front row and, and, you know, take copious notes. Right. But by the time I got to junior year and the classes were small, it was pretty much me and white males. And the one thing I recognize is that I was kind of struggling by myself. You know, I was, I was doing like all nighters, like once a week to get through the material. It didn't really occur to me to work in partnership with um, the other students and until there was a professor that broke the class up into groups to work on projects and he put me in a group of three other engineers all white males and I'm still friends with one of those guys today that's how we met and he and I we, we saw each other you know like a month ago right so that was the first time it occurred to me oh we should work together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wish it hadn't taken me so long. But um, it's like, okay, we can, you know, we can work as, as a team on these things. And so that really helped me going forward. And then when I started working at NASA, uh, which actually was my second job, but, you know, after a few years working for um, a Navy contractor, I was hired into a group of 50 engineers, and I was the only woman. And it's true that the bathroom I used said woman. Woman, singular? Singular. Oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. Yes, and I have, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then with, with cameras. Uh, you know, I definitely would have had a picture of that. But, um, and I, there were only two other people of color in this group, one guy from Guyana and another guy from India. For me, I, I, again, I wasn't phased at that point because my whole education had pretty much, I was the only one I'd gotten used to it. You know, I just developed friendships with the people I was working with, learned how to work as a team. I think I demystified for them, you know, what it meant for me to be, a woman of color, you know, in their environment. And then I became just another one of their engineering colleagues. Describe to me what you mean. I think I know what you mean. That you demystified what it mean, meant to be a, a woman of color. Like you modeled being another engineer on the team. Is that, I mean, right? Right. And I had a, I had a few uh, struggles along the way. Can you talk I, about that? Yeah, I'll hit on two. <laughs> yeah. So the first one was I was working and this person was from another organization. He, I, I was in a group of mostly mechanical engineers working on mechanisms and I was designing something which is actually supposed to go on the space shuttle. Um, and I had to work with somebody from a different division who was going to be doing the electronics for it. Right. So he and I had an initial meeting and I was telling him what I was working on. And he called me when he got back to his office and said, your numbers are wrong. You did this wrong. And I'm like, well, let me tell you how I got to my number. So I'm starting to walk him through how I got my number. And he goes, well, I did it in four steps. I said, well, let me walk you through so you can see where I got from the requirements to what I had in my design. And, of course, then he saw I was right. And, and there were like four fo phone calls of him trying to prove me mm. wrong. Mm. And then eventually he realized, yes, I did know what I was doing. But I, he just had this predisposition that somehow I must not be competent 
mm-hmm. and I had to prove myself. Mm-hmm. But another one, this is maybe a little bit more humorous. Uh, uh, there was a, I'd been working in this group now for a couple of years, and there was a new hire who had come from a school in Florida. And we were standing around the mailboxes, you know, back in the day when people would get actually physical mail at their workplace. And he was um, looking at a postcard, and he just had this you know, energy around him that he wanted somebody to look at what he was looking at, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's like beaming. Finally, somebody looks at what he's looking at. And he goes, my buddy sent me this postcard. And it says, you know, you know greetings from Florida. And I happened to get a glance of it. And it was like four women with just bikini bottoms on, mm. laying, you know, belly down on the sand, looking over their shoulders, you know, greetings yes. from Florida. And, uh, and then he makes the comment, you know, they're not engineers, and so I'm like, oh, hmm. I said, hmm. no, let's talk about that. Let's talk about it. So what did you say? I, I said, well, tell me, tell. why aren't they engineers? You know, let's, 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 let's examine that, that thought a little bit. And he's like, uh, 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 you know, yeah, he's like getting out the shovel. Right. So, so how did you handle that? I mean, that's a great, that's a great moment. It's a teaching moment. I mean, you could have gotten really angry. Yeah. You could have lost your proverbial stuff, but what did you do? What'd you say? Yeah. I said, well, let me, let's, let's, let me take a look. Okay. Well, you think because they're good looking they can't possibly also be engineers is that really the thing you know and so um and then he sort of got a little bit quiet a little sheepish and uh and that was kind of the end of that particular conversation oh but I have a one more from that time period um that I thought was pretty funny so we used to get these decks of um postcards uh that were advertising companies that made tools and you know, gears and motors and all kinds of uh, equipment. And uh, at this time, and I'm really dating myself here, this is before they were like this idea of hostile workplaces. So it was very common to go into like the um, machine shop, which I would go to like, you know, every day. I start my day in the machine shop getting to get something built or something where there were pinup posters uh, all over the walls, you know, calendars and, you know, half naked women, you know, all the time. And, And most of these guys got these materials from these companies right and so I'm looking through these cards and uh, one says you know order our catalog and you'll get a calendar with Trixie and there's this woman who's like you know has like for some reason like boxing gloves you know over her chest with and you know with tools around her or whatever and there were two of these cards like that and after going through these you know they would come every couple months or three months and I, I, I got a little tired of this and so um, normally what you do is you'd write your name and address and they'd send you a catalog right yeah so um, I decided I was going to write back to these companies, and instead of putting my name and address, I wrote a little note. And I said, not all of your customers are men and might find your sexist advertising offensive and put it in the mail, right? Good for you. And so I, it was cathartic. I felt, I felt good. <laughs> and Did then, you get a reply? So fast forward, next time I get a pack of these cards, I totally forgotten about it, right? It was just a, in, the, in the moment kind of thing. I'm going through the cards and I get to the first one. Ah, here we go again with Trixie or whatever her name was. Here we go. Then I get to the other one and it looks exactly the same, but they've added on the very bottom in bold print, followed by several exclamation points, mail calendars also available. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that may be one of your most proud accomplishments. <laughs> That is hilarious. Oh, they probably opened up a whole new demographic. <laughs> a whole new demographic. Oh, my gosh. But well, your, your point is so well taken. Speak up. Say something. Yeah. I mean, in the world we live in right now, it's very easy to get angry, to be outraged, to blame and shame. 
And what I'm hearing you say is that you are more interested in modeling dialogue and conversation and listening. I mean, I wonder if that's always been your way or if you found a way to make that part of who you are or if, if that just came naturally. Because like, I think you and I agree that the more diversity in workplaces, whether it's diversity of skin color or experience or thoughts or race or ethnicity, the better. But it's complicated as well. And I wonder how you're so calm is my question. <laughs> Let's see. A couple things. One is, I mean, I really genuinely like people and I like the diversity of people, including people who may be very different from me. You know, I understand that people have a variety of experiences growing up that inform who they are. They're not necessarily bad people because, you know, of the influences that made them see the world differently than I see the world, you know, and I know that I see the world because I was influenced by the environment. I was brought up in my parents and their stories and other people grew up in different environments and had different uh, family stories that, that informed them. So uh, I think hearing each other's stories is so important, you know, humanizing people, getting to know them. I, mean, I could tell you right now, I have good friends who I know are on a different political, you know, spectrum than I am. And once we, when we got to know each other and we sort of knew that about each other, we're like, you know what, let's put that aside. We like each other all these other ways and let's just do the things together that we enjoy. And we, and this doesn't have to be all of who we are. You know, we're multifaceted Mm -hmm. people. And, um, you know, so I think that's part of it. And I also think that you have a practice, as you and I've talked about before, of, mindfulness that that informs I think your health but also the way you lead and the way you talk to other people I agree with you 100 percent that and, and this is why I'm in medicine is is that you know people are more than just the sum total of their lab results right they are they're the complex integrated sum of their lived experiences their their biases their environments that they grew up in their you know behavioral patterns that they learned from a young age and that we bring those things to our everyday life, to our work, to our parenting, our caregiving. We also bring those things to our health. And so talk about your kind of mindfulness practice, if you will. I mean, I don't know if that's what you call it, but how, how you, because, because you do have a calm that I can only imagine in the workplace serves you well. Well, I, I go back to when I first got out of college. I was very interested in, in yoga. I had heard about it and I t- did my first, um, you know, yoga classes when I first got out of college. And one of the main things I took away from that that first practice was the connection between, you know, the emotional and psychological stress and how it lives in your body and just trying to make that connection and how to, you know, the way I would think about it, I would recognize I had some sort of physical stress. And from the training from yoga, this was a cue for me to get into some deep breathing to relax the body. And then I would find that once I relaxed my body, I was more relaxed psychologically, you know, and uh, emotionally. I could calm myself down. And so this technique, uh, I tried to make it automatic, you know, that, that recognize your, 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 your shoulders are going up, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, your, your, you know, your, your, your heart rate is starting to rise, uh, recognize that, breathe, calm down. And so this has been really helpful for me um, in stressful situations. And so the, when I think about how I first used that in a work setting, it was, I worked for that Navy contractor before NASA and it was a small company. And one of the things that they would do is once a month, they'd have these big company meetings and they would have the young engineers come up and talk about what they were doing. And it was very stressful because first of all, you're, you know, hear young engineers talking in front of a crowd for the first time, the president of the company's there. Mm-hmm. 
we are working in a classified environment, so we're always worried about making sure that what we're saying could be presented in an unclassified way, and we're not going to, you know, inadvertently say the wrong thing in front of in an insecure environment. And all of us knew our number was going to come up, and all of us saw our colleagues go up there and just It's making my panic. palms sweat yeah. thinking about it. <laughs> yes. I mean, we would see each other just go out there and everybody was a nervous wreck. And so I knew my number was going to come up and I was determined I was not going to be a, a nervous wreck. I was also determined that I was going to talk about this complicated stuff I was doing in a way that the business person could understand. Because mm-hmm. the other thing I realized, people go, I had no idea what that guy was talking about. And so I had two, you know, two goals, be calm and, and, and talk about this in a way that is interesting and that the person the business person or the, you know, HR person can understand what I'm talking about. So one thing I would do is I would go up to that room between meetings and stand on that platform and look out at this empty room and imagine Mm. there's a crowd there. And just doing that, I would get hot, you know, I would get nervous, my heart rate would go up, just imagining. And so I would stand there until, and, and engage the breathing until I got calm. And I just did this you know, every day until that period between feeling that initial sort of panic and the calm sort of got, you know, shorter and shorter. So fast forward, gave my presentation. I was able to do it calmly. And I did have the business person say, you're the first person who presented something I actually understood. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Let's take a quick break. Tired of wondering where to look for trusted medical information and advice? Subscribe to Dr. Lucy McBride's newsletter and wonder no more. Each week, Dr. McBride delivers real-time information about the latest medical news and guidance on how to manage your physical and mental health in tandem. Subscribe online at www.lucymcbride.com newsletter and learn the tools you need to manage your health. Again, that's www.lucymcbride.com newsletter to subscribe. And welcome back to Beyond the Prescription. Let's acknowledge that anxiety is part of how we you know, get the job done. It's part of how we run from the proverbial, you know, tiger in the wild, right? Um, and, and fear is, is built into our DNA, is a survival technique. But then when it gets activated during a presentation, that's when we talk too fast and flush. Oh my gosh, isn't that the worst when you turn red in front of a crowd and then you feel yourself turning red and then the redness gets worse. And, and, and so to have that ability to see yourself from a distance and recognize the inseparability of your mental health in that moment and your physical health or your emotional triggers and how your body feels is really a skill. And one that I think we all could learn from, especially in the world we live in, because I think we're constantly being triggered, right? It's like our adrenaline is constantly being triggered by all of the threats we face from, you know, climate change to ongoing racial injustice to COVID to, you know, just managing being a human in this world we live in. So to have that skill kind of built in, it's what I counsel my patients on, on doing, but you somehow got that as a youngster. You, you recognize that early. The other thing that's interesting to me about stress is that particularly, I think for like high achieving women, we start to sometimes associate the stress and the anxiety we feel when we're trying to achieve and perform with the actual success itself. Like, I think we can start to think that, oh, because I pulled out all nighter and I was a a nervous wreck and drank, you know, a pot of coffee and then got a good grade. It was because of that stress. When actually, if we had done what Andrea had done, which is breathe, meditate, and then sort of be in your sort of rational mind, you might've gotten sleep and had an easier time getting the the job done. I don't know if you think think about that or if you ever had that issue where you were anxious and, and stressed and then saw how different it was when you weren't. 
Yes, and I think there's an additional aspect, too. I think some people use that kind of stressful energy as a badge of honor. Mm, oh, yes, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Like, I'm so stressed. Yes, and it's like, oh, you must be working hard, and you should be you know, rewarded. So you know, that's definitely in the environment. So I, I, I think because I did sort of develop these skills kind of early on, it's something I just, I just naturally go to now. And I try to create, you know, even if I'm working real hard and not getting enough sleep, I try to create a relaxing environment, you know, uh, for me to, to do that. Like for, for me, like when I was working on my graduate degree, I had a baby, you know. He was born like six weeks before, you know, after my finals in my first year of my oh master's my program, right? And, uh, you know, so there was, a, you know, and I'd have him on my lap while I'm working. And I would just, you know, say, okay, let me just work through this calmly. I put my classical music on and just try to create the most serene environment I could, even though I knew I wasn't going to get enough sleep and what I was doing was, was stressful. I would just try to get the environment conducive to calm. <laughs> yeah, that that's a skill. And then I wonder how that's affected your physical health and your your just general health, you know, in your life. And let's be clear, I don't always keep my cool. <laughs> you know what? I was going to say, I'm going to guess that you're a human being and that you lose your marbles every now and oh, then. Yeah. You lose your cool. Like, you're on a podcast. You're here right now. You look so put together. But I'm going to guess that you're like all of us, including me, who you try your best, but you, you, you lose it sometimes. Yeah, just talk to my husband or my kids. Totally. They can tell you all about when I lose it. Right. Let's, let's, not, let's not pedestalize people here. Let's recognize that... <laughs> That human beings are human beings, but but what it sounds like is you've used the tools to 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 try to be calm and present and mindful in your in your life. Yeah. And I would say, you know, as far as like the the work environment and the home environment, um, you know, my my youngest son when he, when he was little, he had a pretty bad asthma, and we were in crisis mode on a regular basis managing his health. Um, and, you know, had to be hospitalized when he was like four years old. This is when I was working in the White House, which was like the most stressful environment I've ever worked in, by the way. Um, and it gave me perspective when, when, you know, he was, we were rushing him to the ER and he's turning blue because he can't breathe. Oh. Uh, and he's not even four years old. You know, I had that experience and it just told me like this situation is worth my emotional energy. Yeah. Nothing at work mm. could ever get me to this, I, you know, it created this clear line. It's like, no matter what happens to work, I can't give it this emotion. All my emotional energy needs to go towards my family. So that, that helped me put that in perspective. Yeah. You put, you made your priorities clear to yourself. It sounds like. Yeah. Right. Because we can't be revving the engine of our adrenaline all day long about every single issue that would be fatiguing and draining. And it would, you know, put us on overdrive, which is, which is frankly what I see a lot of in my practice, people who are, you know, whether they recognize it or not, the anxiety and the stress is sort of in the driver's seat. Mm. And, and instead of them being in the driver's seat of their reactivity to stress, you know, e even if the stress is really stressful, that's the, the, real. Um, but having that emotional regulation and then being able to kind of um, allocate where you put your emotional energy is a real skill. I wonder how you could talk about how you've used that mindfulness or consciousness of your own mind as a leader, as a woman of color in STEM, like there must have been moments in your life where you're confronted with either discrimination or microaggressions or macroaggressions. Like, how have you dealt with those moments? So I, I definitely have dealt with, um, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of two incidents um, with, with kind of abusive leaders, mm. you know, um, it wasn't necessarily personal to me in these cases as that was the style of some of these people. And, and they sort of, with this sort of aggression and 
intimidation, and and it was really going back to you know the more you're going to escalate and and be inappropriate, the calmer I'm going to get. Yeah, you know? and it's once- like Michelle Obama. It's like you go low, we go high. And yeah, and so I I learned that because I realized. If I match that emotional energy, they've won, mm. and and their their objective is to is to exercise me. They they're actually looking for an emotional reaction from me, mm. and um and again I'd had that thing where it's like this is where my emotional energy goes. It goes to my family. That's where it's worth. But I'm not going to let this person who I can clearly see is exercising some poor leadership <laughs> techniques here. I'm not going to you know give in. And I frustrated these people quite a bit by the way. But um, and I think in the end, I earned their respect, but it, it was hard during that period where I was not going to play and, you know, succumb, uh, you know, to that kind of uh, pressure. And I think part of it is I, I I think for a lot of people, their career becomes all that they are. It is such a huge part of their identity. And certainly my career is a big part of my identity, but it's not all of me. And I know that I have a lot more of me that is independent from, from, from my career to, to fall back on and not rely on just getting my self-worth from, from my career. Yeah, it's so important what you said about the leadership styles that often get people ahead in the world we live in. Sort of bullying, aggressiveness, like almost narcissism, like it's my way or the highway, which if people aren't really aware in the moment or, or in general of of that is a style that is not necessarily about them, but it's about that person. And then they capitulate to it and, and then escalate themselves to, to meet that emotional energy of the person who's screaming or yelling or whatever they're doing or bullying. Then, as you said, you're letting them win. And then you're not really respecting your kind of right mind. But it's easier said than done to be calm in those moments and I wonder, is this a question you get from mentees? Like, how do you manage those moments? Or how, like, how do you get out of a tricky situation if you feel like there's abuse or discrimination? Or like, what are your like life hacks on those kind of things? And so this, that's, I, I do mentor quite a few people. Yeah. And, and, and this is a common thing. This is a human nature thing where you're yes. going to find these personalities and the, uh, wherever you go. And I think it starts with realizing that, first of all, humanizing that person. Mm. And realizing this is their weakness, not their strength. They're going to this because of a place of weakness in them, and it's not doesn't make them a strong leader. And as soon as you sort of, you know, look at it that way, that I, I actually, when I've had these situations with people, even you know they were you know above me and res- <laughs> uh, and responsible for my evaluation, you know, my performance, I would still look, you know, say, you know, this is um, a sign of of weakness in them. And I had some mm. empathy mm. for them. I'm yeah. like, you know, I'm sorry that I feel like I'm sorry that they have to turn to this. And it's really not, I, I would not take it personally. I would say this is, you know, even though they're targeting me, it's really not personal. It's really, they're struggling with their ways of being a leader and they have turned to this sort of weak way of, of doing things. Yeah. I mean, it's such an important point, um, particularly with all the divisiveness in our country and I think you're I think you're so right Andrea that when people go to that anger and leadership by bullying it reflects about some sort of hole in their emotional space it's almost easier to default to anger um, as a leader and it, and it shows that that person doesn't really have control over what they're trying to to lead on and so empathy is like the kryptonite for yeah. that right it's not just a strategy, but it also is appropriate. I mean, it's it, to disarm that person's power over you. And then I think you've also told me that 
conversations, listening, understanding people's point of view. I mean, can you talk about that? And I think also it's like not giving up on them, you know, yeah. and, and saying, you know, they can be a better leader, you know, <laughs> um, and not, you know, again, that's part of the empathy. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Does your personal brand or business have a story to tell? Podcasts are a great way to build a genuine connection with your audience. Whether you have an existing podcast or want to start a new one, with K-Global, all you need is the drive to succeed and we'll take care of the rest. Let's get to work. www.kglobal.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Let's get on with our conversation. Okay, you start with empathy. Mm-hmm. You kind of disarm this person who's maybe screaming at you or bullying you or you know, even sending you just nasty emails. You know, whatever the sort of tactic is of the person has some control over your work or life at, at work. Start with empathy. And then what next? Like, how do you how do you diffuse a situation when there's difference? Like, it, whether it's ideological difference or racial difference or, you know, just personality difference. The next thing is really to get to the point of what we want to jointly do. You know, mm-hmm. if we're working together, you know, what is our common goal? You know, to just bring it back to the point of what are we working on here? What's the, you know, what we logically need to do next? Let's get the emotion out of the way and figure out what is really the problem at hand that we're trying to solve. And if we have different points of views about it, let's talk about that even more. And for me, it's not always important that the way I see things prevails. I just want to know that I've been hurt. Hurt. Yep. And if I, if I know I've been heard and there's a different decision, I'm okay with that. I just mm. want to make sure I get a chance to be heard. It's so good. I mean, so you're, it's empathy first, listening. I mean, I find this with my patients too. Like when we're having a conversation and maybe they disagree with my recommendation or we're just seeing things differently, as long as I'm listening to them and, and they feel heard and vice versa, then, then I'm okay with what the decision is. It's, it's about listening and not shouting. And communication, and communication yep. means you've each side has been heard and understood. Right, exactly. I mean, can you think of some examples at work where, like, there's been a conflict and you've diffused it? I mean, do you have any specifics? So I'm thinking of a situation where I was on a, a team that was a agency-wide uh, team looking at restructuring um, a particular way of, of doing work. And, uh, and in my particular organization, we were set up in a certain way. And this was going to have impacts to, to my team, whatever we decided to do. And it was going to have disproportionate impacts to my team than the other uh, folks who were on, on this particular uh, group that was working together. And I just felt like I was not being heard uh, mm. about, uh, you know, sort of the impacts and how I wanted to uh, involve my people. My, my, my view is that you know, people who have to live the change need to have a voice in the change. Yeah, And there was more of a... a an effort to just push this through and, and not really want to take the time with the work that I want to do to make sure. I mean, this was this was a, a situation where there were people who worked for me who were going to lose status. Mm. I mean, it was not a little thing, mm-hmm. the, the way this change would roll out. I didn't want to have it just imposed from the top. I wanted them to be engaged in this discussion so they would also see, you know. The uh, process. Yeah, the process and how we were in, ending up where we were. And, and I, I was, uh, I was kind of the lone person, you know, who, who wanted to sort of pump the brakes a little bit. And there was some frustration with the rest of the team that I wasn't just getting on board and the same sort of thing. I was held after school, as I put it one day, where <laughs> I was given a talking to, uh, you know, um, and kind of viewed as being sort of uncooperative. Mm. But my whole thing, I had to look out for my people. I wanted to make sure that I, I was heard and that this was, this was, uh, 
done in a deliberative way. It wasn't just checking a box. Yeah, because these are people you're talking about. These, these are, are people's people. livelihoods. Right, they're people. Yeah, and again, their status and their jobs was going to change as yeah. a, as a um, result of what was being discussed. So eventually, um, I stuck with it, and I had to be, I mean, there were some people who were silently sort of like, you know, you should listen to her, but nobody really in the in the group meetings is really sort of standing up for my point of view. So, and this is one I was willing to follow my sword for because I cared about my people. Uh, fast forward, um, I, I, I prevailed, you know, I was heard, and I got an award. <laughs> I mean, Andrea, that is such a good example of, I mean, you know, women, women of color are silenced every day, and it's so hard to speak out, regardless of, who you are, but it's, it's hard to speak out against the grain of the popular narrative, right? right? right. It's just hard. Right. It's, it's why it's hard for women to go into science and technology. It's why, you know, it's why we have so many problems in this world. It's hard to do something that's different from the people before you. And so I love that you got the award. I'm sure you didn't do it for the award, but it speaks to the bravery and courage that you had that you shored up somehow to, to speak not just your truth, but the truth. I mean, that's leadership, and that's really where organizations are healthier. And, I mean, I'm sure you felt really good after that outcome. Right, and, and my folks, even though, you know, as I said, some people are going to lose sort of status, they understood. They were engaged in the process. They came to the same conclusion after looking at all the things we were considering. But it was a much easier transition because they had bought into it rather than it being imposed upon them and they had to react to. And that would have been a very different type of transition. I mean, it's just true for human beings in general, right? It's like when people understand the process, they understand the information that goes into a complex decision, they're more likely to be empathetic with change, affect the change. I mean, I think about it with my patients. Like if I just said, hey, take this medicine and trust me on it and, you know, good luck to you, no one would adhere to the advice I have. I mean, we have to we have to educate, we have to arm people with the tools that they need to, to make hard decisions for themselves. And I think ultimately what you're saying, and, and I, I agree with this, is that leadership is about empowering the people that you're leading and not dictating from a, a, a place of, you know, moral superiority and just do it because I said to. Right, because there is a positional power, you mm-hmm. know, just because you have a position, you can dictate, uh, you know, the terms and, and people must adhere, you know, uh, or, and then I, I would argue that almost any position of leadership is leadership by influence. You know, yeah. if you want to do it well, that you really have to, um, you know, be compelling, you know, and, and, and get people on board with uh, what's going on. And I think the most important thing uh, is um, when I think about leadership in, in my team is like being transparent with them. Mm. If there's stuff you can't tell them, say, I can't tell you. And this is why I can't tell you. And if I can, this is when I can tell you. Um, and, and to give them what they need to be successful in their jobs, you know, to delegate, to stand back, you know, trust them as, um, you know, mature, uh, you know, professionals that are capable of doing their jobs. And it's okay if they approach their jobs in a way that's different than I would do it. Mm. You know, I'm not trying to tell them how, I just want to make sure, enable them to do it and to, and to be there and to be, be their advocate and uh, supporter. Yeah. I mean, you've given all these great ingredients for, for leadership and hard conversations in the workplace when they're differing opinions and personalities. It's empathy, it's listening, it's communication, it's trust, mutual respect, not micromanaging, not holding the moral high ground. And also, I mean, it's having the humility, which you just wear um, as a person, Andrea, but having the humility and what I try to do is, it's not even conscious, but just like recognizing that I don't know everything. Like I, I, I have some training 
I went to medical school. I've had some experience, but I don't know you better than you know you, yeah. right? Like, you know you. And so here is the, as I say to sometimes the patients, you know, my job is just to give you the sort of the, the menu of options like the Cheesecake Factory <laughs> and to give you my opinion about what, what, what I think you should do if I were you, but not to judge you if you don't take that advice because, again, you have a different lived experience. You have a different perspective. You may have a different worldview. You may have different goals for your health than, than I would. Like some people don't want to live to their 105, right? They don't want to prevent every single ache and pain and cholesterol elevation. They, they'd rather, you know, manage things more holistically and, and that's okay. And I think tolerance of different points of view and ideologies and, and, and seeing people for the people that they are is really, to me, that's leadership. And you, and you've done that. I'd love to hear your how you talk to your employee about the vaccine, because you and I are talking about, you know, helping people get the tools they need to be healthy, whether it's health as defined by being vaccinated against COVID or health as being like a, a self-actualized employee who's armed with the tools they need to be successful in their job. And so you had an employee who was vaccine hesitant. And then instead of doing what a lot of employers did, instead of like dropping the hammer and saying, get it or else, you had a conversation. Yeah. And I, you know, um, I understood that this person believed things that led him to, you know, worry that there was danger, you know, real danger, um, you know, with the vaccination. And, um, and I, and I understand, I mean, even though I don't believe those things, you know, I, I feel like I have, I have good information, good, credible information for whatever, you know, reasons, you know, the way I put it, you know, there are things he trusts and things he doesn't trust. Mm -hmm. And because of, uh, you know, the source of information, trust and distrust, that's where he was on, 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 on the vaccine, that he thought it was a dangerous thing for him to do. And he, he did do it eventually, but I, I thought it was really important for me to go talk to him and to acknowledge how hard it was for him to do that. Mm. And I just want him to know that I know it was hard for him. And I tried to say, and I, can, I can only imagine if I were in a situation where my information that I trusted told me that something was mandated at work that involved something going into my body was going to harm me. I, I, I can, I can only imagine what that would be like. And so I just want you to know that I, I appreciate what a big decision this was. And, and because, you know, um, he did that, uh, you know, there was other people who report to him who also were hesitant that, you know, helped get over, over that line. Yeah. Because people get their facts from different places and that doesn't make them ignorant or ill-informed it just means that they have different information yeah. and we have to respect that but also without dictating points of view but but help people try to get the information that they need or, or at least consider a different perspective let me ask you this what would you consider your greatest success whether it's like personal professional health-wise like what do you consider successful to you as, as defined by Andrea Rizaghi Oh, that's really easy. It's oh, like, good. <laughs> it's like raising my sons mm. to be healthy, independent uh, adults. Yeah, you know, I mean that's just like to get up. You know, when you get to that point, where it's like, okay, they're they're launched. They're on a good path, and I'm happy with where both of them are in their lives. So that's yeah. And you're such a family oriented person. I mean, I know you're super close with your your parents and your extended family, and that brings you so much meaning and joy. And I mean, y you all are so close. I only, I can imagine that gives you a lot of strength. Yes, absolutely. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I always had that reservoir strength yeah. in my family that, um, I, that gave me security. So when I was facing tough things in the workplace, 
I knew that I was, uh, I always knew that I was a, a strong person, an appreciative person, you know, because I had that reservoir strength that came from my, my family. Yeah. And from an early age with dad supporting you yeah, and not saying no. Right. And not closing doors for you. Right. See me for who I was, you know, That's right. all my, I wasn't just the first girl who was going to be a particular way. I was an individual, his daughter who wanted to play with tower power tools. And he was like, okay, let's do this. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. Okay. So I always wrap up with one question. So if you were to give one piece of mental health advice to someone who is struggling, say someone who was in their, I don't know, 20s or you know early, early career days, they're struggling with ambivalence, low self-esteem, you know, maybe not being seen for who they are, uh, maybe not being heard. Uh, what would you give, what would you, what would you tell that person to do? What would be your top advice? To recognize that everybody struggles with, with those things and that they're not um, broken or weak because of that. They're human because of that. And to sort of demystify the people that they look at, they may think of being successful and know that all these people successful have a variety of, you know, weaknesses and insecurities that they're, you know, that they're dealing with and, and trying to manage and that, and that they can do that too, you know, and to just try to breathe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially for, for earlier career people to know that whatever decisions they make now, um, they can make other decisions later. You know, they have a lot more time than maybe they think to figure things out um, and to, to not panic. Yeah, I think that's such a good point that I think that young people often look at, you know, people like you and think, oh, she it must have been a straight line, must have been, you know, or I don't know if they didn't look at that. Like, maybe they don't, maybe people don't assume that about you. But it would be easy to assume that someone like you or maybe like someone like me who who looks like they have it together hasn't had struggle. When, I mean, for me at least, I'm most proud of the hard parts of my life and how I got through them than I am about like my medical degree, to be honest. It's really about like when people weren't looking and how I kind of dug deep to overcome things. Like that's, 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 that's what I'm most proud of. And that's what I hope for my kids is that they have that reservoir, as you just said, of empathy for themselves and compassion for themselves to be able to get through hard times because life is hard. Life is brutal. And I would say the other thing, and I talk to, especially, I think, especially women, because I, I mentor young women who are finishing up college and, you know, thinking about their life after college. And, and one of the b- big pieces of advice, again, you have more time than you think, because to get through college, like every semester, you've got to do something, you've got to achieve, you've got to achieve, you've got to achieve, you know, until you get to this point, and then you have a lot more space to work. But, uh, and also, you have to get a lot of things right to get those mm. credentials. Mm. And I think that there's not enough value in getting things wrong and mm. and how it's okay to get things wrong and that you don't have to be perfect and that you know there's a i mean if you think about in the world of of engineering it's like you learn so much when you do something wrong don't miss that lesson and that's the same in, in your life when you do something wrong um or what you think is wrong don't beat yourself up and say i'm a failure you know i you know something's wrong with me it's like no you're human everybody does things wrong life would be so Boring, boring. If everything are right, and and there's so much to gain from. What did I just learn from that? You know, so I always try to go to what would I learn if I didn't like the way that felt. Let's see if I could avoid doing that again. What what other choices can I make if I encountered this? And just to you know, um, you know, value value the wrong. <laughs> it's such a good point, and I think girls in particular are sort of socialized mm. to to like be right more yeah. than maybe 
guys are. I mean, that's a huge generalization, of course, but, but, you know, and especially with like the internet and social media and the pressures on young women today, you know, whether it's about appearance or about, you know, their views, like there's a lot of, there's pressure to conform and, and, and to be right. And so it's, it's how I encourage my daughter to, and she already is kind of naturally, but just, you know, not be so perfectionistic, kind of like I was when I was growing up, like give yourself a break, fail better. Yes. (laughs) My, my brother-in-law is the Stanford tennis coach and that's his mantra for his team. Um, one of them. And he's like an inspirational leader is fail better process over outcome. And, you know, people will say to him like, oh, that's so easy for you to say you're like at the top of your career. But but that's how we got there is by failing and picking himself up and doing it better. And it sounds like that's what, what you've done to, too. And that's what you advise young women. Yeah. Don't be afraid of the failures. Look for the lessons there. You get stronger. You get more knowledgeable when you really examine those failures. Yeah. Andrea, you are such an inspiration. I mean, you're more than a NASA engineer. You're a human being who has recognized that leadership isn't just about, you know, getting the top degrees at the top schools you went to. It's about empathy, kindness, listening, and maintaining calm under pressure, which is really a, a, a mental, physical health skill at the workplace, but also in your life. And just by talking to you, you've kind of modeled all those things. And I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you like this episode, I'd love you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us a line at podcast at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on the show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice applicable to individuals. Such advice must be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at K-Global Studios in Washington, D.C. Our music is by my awesome brother, Walter Martin. On our way out, please enjoy his song, We're All Young Together. I'm your host, Lucy McBride, and until next time, be well. The new kid on my street She kind of looks like me Instead of climbing trees we like to sing this song in harmony And her mama sings too And the old man taps his shoe Music's like shampoo I need it every morning, yes I do And we're all young together